Amen. Will you grab your Bible, open to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, you'll find uh, that Scripture on page 1202, I believe, in the Pew Bible in front of you. As we continue our study of the book of Luke, we are just uh, making our way through what is known as the journey narrative. This is the section of Luke's Gospel where the Lord turns His uh, heart and His mind towards Jerusalem, and really it uh, began back at the very end of chapter 9, and it will continue all the way to chapter 18 as we follow the Lord Jesus through these events in His life as He is moving towards Jerusalem where He will ultimately be crucified and then defeat sin and death and rise from the dead. We last saw Jesus uh, weeping over the city of Jerusalem, weeping over the unrepentant hearts of those who uh, refused to, to listen to His teaching. And He's been expressing for the last two weeks to us that con- uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, few people will enter in the narrow gate and that it is an uh, endeavor that takes uh, striving. And God has been... Uh, opening our eyes to the reality that it is a great, great error and danger to assume that you will enter into heaven based on things that you have done, things you participate in, places you may belong. That is a great and ultimately can lead to an eternal damnation. And now we'll see today that Jesus is going to start to teach us a little bit about what it practically means to follow Him as He continues to give us uh, spiritual direction about His kingdom. So I want to start with a word of prayer and then let's dive in and begin studying in Luke 14. Pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. God, I confess that this is a humbling passage of Scripture. And Lord God, I thank You for the weight that You have applied to my own personal heart through the study of this Scripture. God, I pray that now as we receive it together as Your people, Lord, uh, knowing uh, that it's intended for us, that it's perfect in every way and without error, Lord God, we thank You for this gift. And Father, now I pray that You'll give me uh, recall and the grace to preach Your Word and that it might find uh, spiritual ears and hearts that will receive it, respond to it, Lord God, and be changed by it for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a Saturday afternoon, and we pick this story up. The Bible says, Now it happened as Jesus went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, and they watched him closely. Verse 2, And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept quiet. And he took him and... He healed this man, and he let him go. And then Jesus answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen, fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him up out of, on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him in this one either regarding these things. Now, let's just stop for a minute and sort of take note as to where we are. 
I find it interesting that after all that we've been studying over the past several weeks, that now we find Jesus again engaged with the Pharisees. He's re-engaging for yet another time with the people who have proven that their intentions are bad, that all they desire to do is to kill Him and to prove Him to be a fraud or a fake or not from God. And yet Jesus continues to engage with them. And even more interesting is that this particular passage outlines a trap set by the Pharisees, that there's no good intentions here whatsoever, that it's not just a coincidence or a happenstance that Jesus finds himself on a Sabbath afternoon eating in the home of a prominent Pharisee where there happens to be this man who is sick and the table is set yet again for them to challenge him on this issue of healing on the Sabbath. Because if you remember, we've dealt with this just a few weeks ago. There's also a very in-depth teaching on the Sabbath and what that means to us in the New Testament that's online that you can download all the notes from that and learn all of that. We're not going to get into all of that today, but it is important for you to understand that the the Pharisees had sort of conjured up their own man-made rules and traditions and they lived by this and and the lines between the law, the actual law of God and the, the religious law that they had manufactured were very blurry. And so for generations, people had followed their teaching about the Sabbath. The reason they're eating bread is because the meal would have been prepared the day earlier so that no work was done on the Sabbath to violate all the rules of the Sabbath. And so they're there eating And Jesus has already, just a few verses earlier, He already healed a woman who was bent over for 18 years. Remember that? And the Pharisees took exception to that. And Jesus put them to shame then. But here we go again. Now, what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, it ought to begin to stir up in you about the kind of Savior that we serve, about the nature of His character, about the fact that that He has time and time again tolerated this nonsense from the Pharisees, and yet here He is again. Why? We know that He knows exactly what's going on. We know that He's not going to be tricked in any way, shape, or form, and yet He plays along with them out of the grace and mercy of His heart. I wonder, I just wonder today if there's some people in this room that Jesus has just been over and over and over. He continues to sort of come to you as you play these games with Him, as you refuse to respond to Him and to come to Him on His terms. But He continues to engage you, to invite you, to let the gate be open to you. You see, this is the character and the nature of the Lord. And there's no guarantee that that invitation will stay open. There's no guarantee of what tomorrow holds. The the important thing is there's an invitation today. And so here we find Jesus engaging with people who have nothing but ill will and ill intention for Him. Second thing it does, it makes me think about the day Jesus engaged with me and saved me. And how I had nothing but ill will towards Him and intention to serve myself and not Him. And yet there He was, revealing Himself in a way that I could not refuse and saving me from my selfishness and my sin. But then there's the other side of this. There's the the side that would say, 
Why are these Pharisees engaging Jesus again after just being put to shame? Why? And it just shows how hard it is to slay the Pharisee in man. Our desire to follow the things that we feel ought to be, the things that traditionally have always been. And we blur the lines between what the Bible says and what we think ought to be. And it happens all the time. And even though they have just been put to shame, here they are again because they won't refuse. The flesh does not die easy. And so here we are at this set up this trap, if you will. Now look at exactly what happens here. The Bible says, and now it happens as he went into the house of one of the rulers, prominent Pharisee to eat bread on the Sabbath. They watched him closely. They're watching him to see everything he does to set him up so that they can put him in a position so he'll violate the law and then he'll be exposed as a fraud. Verse two, but behold, there's a certain man there before Jesus, and he had dropsy. This is a disease I, I remember as a very young Christian encountering this word, and I just uh, I kept imagining somebody who just kept falling, <laughs> dropsy. But that's not at all what this is. That's just the way my brain works sometimes. Uh, that's not at all what this is. Dropsy is a is a uh, really it's a condition. That is a response to, uh, uh, like organ failure normally where fluid builds up in an individual. And so this person would have been bloated with fluid, uh, probably had some, uh, heart failure or some other issues and the fluid was building up in him. I found it interesting as I studied the, the historical, uh, Hebrew view of dropsy that the, the Pharisees uh, considered anyone who had this condition unclean. They associate it, interestingly enough, with sexual immorality. So I'm not exactly sure how sexual immorality gives you uh, a congestive heart failure, but nonetheless, it just goes to show the pretense and the arrogance of the Pharisees and how they were so judgmental to every person in every way they could possibly conjure up a way to be. So this man, bloated with fluid, drowning in his own uh, body is there. Now, he wasn't there because he was invited. They, they wouldn't have had an unclean man in their home eating with them. He's there as the bait. He's there to set Jesus up. That's exactly what he's doing there. And so notice there's a couple questions and a couple responses. Notice in verse 3. Question number 1, Jesus asked them, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because Jesus knows the law. He knows what the Bible says. And he also knows the nonsense that they've created. And so he simply asks them that. And now suddenly the table's turned and they're silent. They can't answer. And why? Because what are they going to say? Ignorant as legalism is, it is amazing how it blinds us. They come to, to trap Jesus and in an instant find themselves in their own trap. If they respond that it is not lawful to heal the man on the Sabbath, they will come across as being uncaring. They just got shamed earlier for that. The people would say, well, what sort of religious leaders are you that you don't even care about those who are sick and afflicted? But if they don't uphold their law, then they'll be seen as liberals. They'll be seen as being soft in the law and well, their whole identity is based in their ability to keep the law, so they can't do that. So how do they respond? Silence. They have nothing to say. 
So I find it interesting in verse 5 that the Bible says, Then Jesus answered them, saying... Well, actually, what that means is Jesus broke the awkward silence because they didn't have an answer. And Jesus asked another question. Well, since you can't answer the first one, let's try another one. And I'm not even going to be creative here. I'm just going to pull out the same question that I asked the last time we went through this little charade. And Jesus says, well, which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? You see, there was a provision in the law that if one of your animals was in need or in danger, that you could rescue the animal. Well, why is that? Well, because the animal had value. The animal was worth money. And we're not worried about the man who's drowning, but the animal, we need to, we need to move on that. We need to, to save an animal. We need to bring water to an animal that's thirsty. And so again, verse 6 says their answer, and they could not answer him regarding these things. Another awkward moment before the Lord. Now in verse 13, I mean in chapter 13, where this account happens uh, earlier, Jesus responds by calling them hypocrites in verse 15. He says that does not each one of you loose his ox and donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? Because they did. Of course they did. Those animals couldn't go all day without water. And so they would take care of their animals, but they weren't worried about a woman who was bent over for 18 years or a man who was drowning in his own fluid. Then in verse 17, Jesus said, And when he had said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. Now, maybe part of what that may mean is that they had nothing to say. They were speechless. They were utterly dumbfounded. They looked like idiots and morons. And all the multitude around them rejoiced. But they come back for more, which is what just astonishes me about my own heart and the human heart. How we are so resistant to what God says when it conflicts with what we think ought to be. So what is this all about? Well, it's, it's about the same thing it's always about. It's about hypocrisy. Jesus is saying, beware of hypocrisy. I mean, here we have hatred disguised as hospitality. That's what that is. That's what it is when they invite Jesus to come. He didn't just wander into this Pharisee's house. He was invited on the Sabbath with the sick man so that they could, you know, orchestrate their plan. And so what looks like kind hospitality, would you come and dine with us, Jesus? We'd love that. Is really just hatred. It's hypocrisy. And we think about our own hearts and our tendency towards being hypocrites and how we, we hate hypocrisy in other people, but yet our hearts will lean that way in an instant when it's inconvenient for us to be authentic, when we, we feel uncomfortable or we don't want to. Have you ever invited somebody over to feed them a nice meal, to spend time with them? But you really wanted something from them. You wanted to build a relationship with them for your gain. Or you wanted them to be in your home for some reason. See, it's just selfishness disguised as generosity. You ever concealed your dislike for someone with a smile? You ever bump into somebody in the hallways of church? 
that you have dislike for in your heart, but you greet them with a warm smile, that's hypocrisy. That's hatred disguised as love. Have you ever come to church, got up, got dressed, got in your car, drove here, and your sole intention in your heart is to be critical, is to find something wrong with something. You're looking to find fault. But you've come to church and you're disguising your divisiveness and your critical spirit as worship. And you may sing like the rest of us. You may look like the rest of us. But believe me, the Lord is not receiving the emptiness of your lips. Do you ever quote Bible verses around people to make yourself look more spiritual? It fascinates me that I, I notice that there are certain people that have a tendency to want to be heard. And so they'll quote a Bible verse. And I'm not saying that I always do this, but I'll sometimes pick up on the fact that there are certain people that every time they get in a situation and they quote the same verse. And I wonder, do they read their Bible? Is that the only verse they know? But they want to make sure that we all know that they know that one. I'm glad they know that one, but they always have to be heard. They're disguising their ignorance for wisdom. It's hypocrisy. Do you ever sit in church with this posture and this look upon your face as you're so engaged in what the pastor's talking about? But in reality, your mind is a million miles away on all sorts of worldly things. But on the outside, you look like you're so focused and so you're disguising your shallowness for, for depth, for spirituality. It's hypocrisy. Have you ever been in a position, a situation where you had the ability to help someone, but you didn't help them because... Someone that you didn't like or someone who maybe you consider your enemy wanted you to help them. Therefore, you didn't help the person you could have helped. You see, Jesus is in that exact situation. You see, the man has dropsy. I wonder how many of us, if we had the ability to heal the man of his disease, wouldn't have done it just to spite the Pharisees who were trying to set us up for a trap. See, Jesus wasn't about them as much as he was about the man who was in need. I mean, he's able to serve both at the same time. Give the truth to one side while doing what he can for the one that he can when he can I think there's a strong message in that for us because there's a tendency in the pridefulness of our heart to just resist doing good things that we have the ability to do because other people whom we don't really appreciate or like expect us to do it, which has nothing to do with the fact that we can help someone. The point is, if you and I are in a position to help someone in need, we help them. You and I, if we're in a position to help someone in need, we help them. Amen. So we're to beware of hypocrisy because that's what it is. Now, secondly, we're to embrace humility. Look at what the Bible says in verse 7. 
He told the parable to those who were invited. So now he's shifting gears. He's going to talk to the invited guests. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you may put you to shame and take you to the lowest place. Verse 10, but when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place first, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up to the higher place. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So as Jesus is invited into the room for this Sabbath meal... The Bible says that they're all watching him. But while they're all watching him, he's watching them. And he's noticing the way they jockey for the good seats, how they come in and want to sit in the place of prominence. And so we know in this culture exactly how that went. They would, they would set the, their, their seats in a, in a shape of a U. And the most prominent, the host would sit in the center. And then the right and the left would be the the best places you could sit. And then so on all the way around to the ends. And they would recline and eat their meal together. And so it was very important as to who got to sit where in the meal. Now, what is Jesus actually telling us here? I mean, what, what is the point of this parable? Well, a parable, first of all, you have to understand, is a, it's an earthly story that's told to illustrate a heavenly truth. And one of the dangers we have in interpreting parables is we tend to over-interpret, okay? Everything in a parable does not mean something. The parable is to make one, sometimes two, main truths. And when you start putting pieces into every little thing, you're going to get yourself tangled up and in trouble. But Jesus here is giving a heavenly directive about the kingdom. We know that because we know the response that's going to follow as we begin next week in verse 15. We know that they understand that. We know that by the statement in verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We know what that is. So Jesus here is talking to those who are invited, the guests. Now, who are the guests? Who are the people that are in the room? They are religious people who think that they are right in the sight of God. That's who Jesus is talking to. They pride themselves on keeping the law. They they find great ease in looking down on those who are less spiritual than them, less obedient than them. They think themselves better than those around them. But in actuality, they forsake the very law that they claim to uphold. You see, Proverbs 25, that every one of the people Jesus is talking to knows by heart, says exactly what Jesus just said. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you be put put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. They knew that. But you see, that didn't apply to them. They're like us. There's a lot of things we know, but it doesn't apply to us. Because we, we're not sure we want to 
We want to humble ourselves under that. We're not sure that's going to work for us. And so here's the people swollen up with pride, the religious crowd who thinks they have it all together, and Jesus is watching them as they jockey for position, as they jockey for prominence. Jesus is not instructing them about social graces. He's not giving them some directive of how to behave when you're invited somewhere. No, He's teaching them about the kingdom. When He says whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, that's a kingdom principle. That's a principle that won't be fulfilled fully until we are uh, in glory before Him. That's not something that's going to fully take place here on earth. And they knew that. You see, the, you know why this is so relevant today? This is relevant today because no one believes this. No one believes that to be last is really first. No one jockeys to be last. I mean, at the very best, we will accept the middle of the pack. But we don't want to be last. And if we're honest, it feels good to be first. There's something in us that just likes to be recognized. It likes to be first. It likes to be... And Jesus said, Oh, you're going to be surprised. You're going to be surprised. Some are going to be surprised when they bang on the door and begin to shout out all the reasons why the door ought to open and let them in, only to hear, I'm sorry, the door is shut and it will not open. I never knew you or where you were from. Then others of us are going to be surprised when we get to heaven. We're going to be surprised that the way we thought it was going to be is not necessarily the way it is. It's going to be better than what we could possibly think for sure, for everyone. But we're going to be surprised in the sense that those we thought were great in the kingdom of God actually pale in comparison to those we overlooked and marginalized and gave little time to because they'll be first. It's that firstness principle that just really just works on our heart. You see... I want you to see that there were people that were invited, okay? They were invited to come. I want you to see, secondly, that Jesus in this parable makes this a wedding feast. That's not just a slip of the tongue. He turns this Sabbath meal into a wedding feast. He says in this story, there were people who were invited, and it was to a wedding feast. Then he gives this direction that some are going to be put to shame and some are going to be put to honor. And whether you face shame or whether you face honor is dependent on how you enter. Do you enter with humility or do you enter with pride? And isn't it interesting that all Jesus has taught us about entering the kingdom of God... All the negative illustrations He's given us are all people trying to... Shout out and make known all the reasons why they ought to be there. But what's interesting is we don't hear anything out of the people who are there and who deserve to be there. Who Jesus invites in and ushers up to the head table. You don't hear anything out of them. Why? Because they're humble. Because they're humble. Because they know they're there by the grace of God. They know that their works did not amount to anything. That's why they're there. 
I hope you know that this morning. So Jesus here is showing us that we're to beware of hypocrisy. We're to embrace humility. And then finally, he wants us to live out kingdom priorities. He wants us to apply this in the way we live in the priorities of the kingdom in our life. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus said to him who invited him. So now we're not to the guests, we're to the host. Jesus looks to the host and he says, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's a mouthful. Jesus is not giving some blanket prohibition to family reunions. To The reason we know this is obvious this morning. Uh, it would prohibit what we're going to do here this morning because we, this is a very inclusive activity. If you're not in the family, you're not allowed to partake of this meal. So that's not what this is. He's not saying that you never do this. He's saying that make sure that you do what he's saying. He's saying make sure that you give meals and that you have feasts and that you serve those who are in need. That's what he's saying, that our values on earth ought to reflect the values of heaven. Now, it parallels to a multitude of illustrations in the Bible, but especially in the book of Luke. Luke 16 tells a story that gives great insight into what Jesus is saying here. The Bible says that there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Then here's what the Bible says in verse 23. And being in torments in Hades or in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in these flames. But Abraham said, Son, remember... That in your lifetime you receive the good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he who is comforted, he's comforted and you are tormented. Now, here's what I want you to see here. Okay, I want you to take these two stories and put them together. I want you to see here that in this Luke 16, the story of Lazarus and the and the rich man, that the, the condemnation of the rich man is not the fact that he's rich. The Bible never condemns the fact that the man is rich, nor does Jesus ever condemn the Pharisee for having a feast. That's so important to hear, American. The problem with the rich man is that he's clothed in fine linen and he eats sumptuously every day and he overlooks the needs of the poor that are before him. This is the, this is the, the illustration. This is the problem Jesus is drawing out. 
So if we go back to Luke 14 and we look closely at what he says in verse 13, Jesus says, but when you give a feast, you see that? He says, when you do this, he's not condemning the fact that you have the ability to give a feast. He's condemning the fact that we're selfish and don't do this. That's what he's condemning. He says, when you do, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. 1 Timothy 6, Paul commands Timothy, Commend those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. No condemnation for having. That's not the issue. Paul goes on to say, well, what do they do? What do they do that have so much? Don't be haughty and puffed up, but in return, let them do good. That they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for a time to come. That's the issue. So many times, so many times, what the enemy will do is twist this message in an environment, in a nation like this, into somehow there are people in this room who don't have... And then you immediately puff yourself up because you don't have and look down on those who have. And there are people in the room who have who immediately start to think, well, is it bad that I have? That's not the issue. The issue is what are you doing with it? That is the issue. So let me ask you this question. Who are the guests at the table of your life? Who are you doing life with? How is your life impacting the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind? You know, this past week, I, I heard somebody say that just in the course of a conversation, they said, you know, it's, it's hard to be at Michael Memorial. Now, first... It kind of grated on me a little bit. I said, what do you mean? I said, man, there's, it's a demanding place. I mean, it's just every week. I mean, it's just so much going on and so much to do and, and so much required. And it just seems like there's so much. And they said, sometimes, you know, I just... I just want to do for me. Just want to rest and relax. So I hesitated. And then this statement came. But I know I can't. Because there's not time. It is hard. It's hard to be here. Because we want to do narrow gate ministry. We don't want to do broad road ministry. We want to do that which you have to strive to accomplish. We want to be a people that are pressed 
every single time we're together to look more and more like the image of the one we claim to serve. The reason there are so many dead churches is because people have chosen to associate themselves with groups that just feed their affections and their ease. That serve themselves. I mean, let's face it. You can go in any number of directions and find a multitude of congregations that you can just waltz in, join, sit, and die. You can just write a little check, give something away, let someone else do the kingdom work, and just feel good inside. But at the end of that life, I'm telling you, if it's me and five of you, It will be me and five of you. Because in the end, narrow gate ministry is all that counts. It's all that matters. It ought to be hard. Because we're wicked. If it was easy, listen, anytime something comes natural to you and me, we ought to be very suspicious. Because that's the flesh embracing whatever that is. But when it feels a little unnatural, when it feels something pushing back on you, I say to people all the time, if there's not, there ought to be something. There ought to be something on your mind 24-7 that's bugging you about Scripture. There's always something. There's always a thorn in my side about the Bible. Always. Because I read it and I love it. I don't just read and go, oh, isn't that beautiful? It's hard. And it irritates me and it gets under me and it grates and works. That's what it's intended to do. If nothing's bothering you, you're not engaged. I'm going to strive to enter the narrow gate. There's nobody skipping through the narrow gate. There's nobody just... Sort of getting swept up in the moment. Hanging on the coattails of somebody else. Oh no, it's one at a time. And there's only one way through and it's through striving. So listen to me. Life in the United States is a feast. You need to embrace this truth. It's a feast. And God's not condemning the fact that you live in a feast. Because you didn't have anything to do with you being here at this time in this place. He did. Who gave you the opportunity to live in a feast? He did. The issue's not that you, please don't feel some guilt or shame because you live in a feast. What are you doing with your feast? What are you doing with it? That's the issue. Who... Who are the guests at the table of your life? Where are you sacrificing till it hurts? That's the issue. Who are we inviting to feast with us? But Jesus turns everything on its head. In verse 14, he says, and you'll be, and you'll be blessed because you cannot repay. You see, In other words, he's saying, don't do this. But then he ends with, well, you're going to be blessed for not doing this. So in other words, don't run away from one thing, but run to another thing. Look at the great reward. You're going to be blessed because they can't repay you. 
You're going to be blessed because they, they, there's no advantage for you. You're going to be blessed because you've been born into a feast and you're able to share with those who don't have. And you're going to be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. You know what's the most amazing thing about this whole passage? Really. The most amazing thing about this entire passage is the fact that it's an invitation that Jesus is inviting the people that He's talking to, the ones that He has watched clamor for the good seats, the ones that He knows are just trying to set Him up and wound Him and hurt Him. He sees all that, He knows all that, and yet it's, a, it's an invitation to come. It's a, it's a group of people whose hearts are hard and whose minds are bent towards destruction. And it's a Lord who has taken the time to explain to them, you can come. You can come. So see, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. You can come. You can come if you belong to Him. If, you, if you're in His kingdom, if you're His son or His daughter this morning, you can come to His table. All you who have, have done all the things that we've done, all you who have lived for yourself and who have chased after your own dreams and blasphemed His name and stolen His glory and whatever the case may be, you can come. You can come. You can come. And you know, this morning, if you're apart from Christ, if you don't know Him as Savior, you can come. You can come this morning. He will receive you. He loves you. He loves you. And just like the man who is drowning in his own fluid. Maybe you've come in here this morning and you're drowning. And Jesus says, you come into my presence. The Bible says that he, he took that man. He, that means he touched him. He didn't, he didn't look across the room. He could have and just said, you're healed, but he didn't. He, he physically touched the man. What an amazing Savior. You can come this morning. The invitation's open. Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes. Father, we take this opportunity before You, Lord God, to pause and to consider, Lord, before we approach Your table, Lord, all that You've accomplished and done. Thank You for this table. Thank You for Jesus, Lord. Thank You for His broken body and His shed blood. And Father, I pray that we would all recognize right now our need for repentance, and cleansing. So, Lord, we come before You with open hearts. You know all the things, Father, that we need to give over to You. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, that they would realize and recognize this morning the invitation to come, to come and dine at the table with the King not because of anything you've done, not because of anything that uh, you've been able to accomplish in your life, but because Jesus Christ did everything. And in our moment of truthfulness before you, we recognize you're our only hope. God, will you just save the lost? God, encourage the saved this morning. Father, do in this time what only you can do for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. If you'd like to come and pray, I invite you to do so.
Every believer is commanded to examine their heart before the table. So if you stay where you are, just in the place where you are, examine your heart before the Lord. But if you need to receive Christ this morning, the invitation is open for you to come. If you'd like to come and plant your family here and begin to live alongside us as a family of faith, I invite you to come. Whatever the Lord's calling you to do, to respond. Amen.